but yeah as i say it's the the format of this is pretty i don't really know it's kind of a tangent yeah organic love organic it. yeah um and i suppose the reason that i wanted to have you on the show is you know i did the um the courage to be you workshop with you which was something run via the coaching institute and was really struck by how many of the things that you you talk about relate to what I've been trying to do with this podcast mm. and, and how I've been trying to um, talk to people and, and, and understand how they have had the courage to follow their hearts mm. and follow their dreams um, and what that really means to them. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm sitting here today with Joe Pane, who is, we're on. sorry, we're on now. We are. On, I just, no. just kind of start. It's yeah. all been recording you since you walked in the door. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> since I walked into this door. Welcome to the Jack Cave, friends new and old for this week's coming up next ramble. Uh, not too much to say at the head here, friends, other than that this is a particularly inspiring interview with plenty of philosophy and food for your thoughts. Um, before we get into the interview, I wanted to welcome Jesse Velick, Leanne Besser, Tony Adams and the anonymous David to the coming up next work. Thank you for your generous pledges via Patreon. Um, if you would like to be a part of the Coming Up Next work, head on over to patreon.com slash marksbros, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-R-K-S-B-R-O-S. Throw in a couple of bucks and support something you love. And let's keep the conversation going. Friends, you can tweet me at cunpodcast or over on Facebook at facebook.com slash cunpodcast. I endeavour to write back to everyone and it's always nice to know what you're loving or not loving about the show. Now over to a man who shifted gear at age 35. Friends, you are in for a treat. You're going to hear all about how Joe Parne changed career to follow his heart and his dreams. I met him while he was presenting at a seminar called The Courage to Be You, which was presented by the Coaching Institute. So without further babbling on, here is my aneurysm-inducing, mind-blowing interview with Joe Parne. And Joe, you've been a, a coach for 10 years now. Yeah. Started your own business about 10 years ago. That's right. And to give the listeners a bit of context, you are 45 now. Yes, I am. If you don't mind my saying. That's nah, all good. Uh, so you came to this, not late in the game, but you'd already had a couple of careers up to that point in time. I did. Um, so what prompted you to go, fuck that, I'm going to do something that I really love? Yeah. Well, it wasn't one thing that prompted it. It was like a series of things. So um, I knew when I started uni in the late 80s that, very late 80s, specifically 1989, that I was in the wrong place because I started off in a science degree in food science and technology. Um, Batch of applied science in organic chemistry. How exciting is that? <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, ironically, that's where I met my best friend and... Uh, and, my, and I realized I was in the wrong place. I realized I didn't belong in a lab. I didn't belong working with things. I wanted to work with people. And uh, from there, I transferred into psychology. So I did a degree in psychology, sociology, that kind of work. 
and um, that led me into the work into the world of rehab counseling so I worked as a rehab counselor for two or three years um, at Ford Motor Company working for a company called um, Vocational Rehab Services there um, met some beautiful people but uh, the job was very very uh, political in the sense that I was just fulfilling a role and nothing more nothing less and uh, knowing that I wanted to keep working with people in a more say resourceful positive environment one of the colleagues, a fellow rehab counsellor who literally was sitting next to me in the office, was telling me about um, this positive experience that he had and how his house was being sold with him and his, uh, his girlfriend, or his then girlfriend, and, um, and how it was handled and how, how special the agent treated him and this agent was different. And, and uh, I just went on and asked him a whole bunch of questions. And bottom line is that led me to um, a local family-run real estate business that got my curiosity. And I went and spoke to them about uh, what they did. And the long and the short of that was I ended up getting a job there and working for seven years for them in real estate. So I ended up working in the world of real estate for that period of time, not having a clue that I was going to end up in, in real estate. But um, the first five years were phenomenal. Um, loved the adventure, loved um, just the essence of um, helping people, um, being different um, in the context of how people have had unfortunate experiences with agents and all this sort of thing. And um, that was just wonderful. And the last two years of those seven years I was there, I was getting a little bit bored because the, the task was repetitive, the challenge was disappearing, and the opportunities for career growth weren't really there. And, um, and I started reading about spirituality, personal development. Um, I, I, I made my first, uh, what I call, um, my first courageous decision in 2004. Some would say, well, hold on, you got married in 1996. Wasn't that a courageous decision? <laughs> well, yeah, but it was. Di- I'm talking about different courage. I'm talking mm. courage that wasn't based on certainty. It was based on pure uncertainty. Whereas, you know, getting married to my wife, Sylvana, in 96 was about certainty as much as... I wouldn't say it was courageous. It was just the right thing oh, to know, do. If, you know yeah. if you're in love with someone. It, it, totally, totally. Yeah. So in 2004, it was actually late 2003, to be exact, I... Uh, I was noticing for the first time in my life that uh, I wasn't feeling as uh, happy-go-lucky as I normally am. I was actually starting to feel, not depressed, but I was going through depressed moods mm. and uh, pulling myself out of those through um, you know, my running and all the things I do with my physical activity. Anyway, um, what happened was a friend of Silvana, Silvana's my wife, a friend of Silvana was, came home from a retreat that she went to. And she was uh, bright and sparkly and feeling <laughs> phenomenal and was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what are you on? And um, she said, oh, I went to this retreat, right? And run by this uh, couple and it was this and it was that and we did this and we did that and it was just great. It was weird but fantastic. And that got my curiosity up. And um, so she put me, put me on to this uh, particular couple, um, Michael and Marlies Carroll, who uh, ran a company back then called Inner Peace. They still do, but to, to a different sort of level. And... Um, I remember making a phone call, Alistair, was um, I rang this lady, I rang the office of Inner Peace and Marlies happened to answer the phone. And the conversation went something like, I love what you guys do. I've read every single page on your website. Um, It sparked an excitement in me that I haven't felt for so long. And whether you've got a job or whether you don't have a job going, I would love to come and work for you, even if that means working for nothing. And it was one of those moments in life that I shared with you uh, in the room that you came where we met at my Courage to Be You seminar, where I said, uh, you know, those moments in life where you say something and you want to pause time and just open your mouth and swallow those words back up, right? <laughs> yep. Because I couldn't believe I actually said that. I actually said to this woman, I'll come work for you for nothing. 
And, and she um, engaged in the conversation and we went there with my wife. We had a chat with her and a hubby, Michael, and, uh, and that began the journey into this uh, spiritual development. And uh, from there, I went and worked with them for about 15, 16 months, 03, going to 04. And that led me into all kinds of uh, incredible experiences, uh, incredible retreats, silent retreats, vision quests, all these different things that we did. It was a phenomenal journey into self and all that sort of stuff. And uh, not knowing back then that that was going to be setting me up for success in terms of what I wanted to create later, which was a coaching business. But I didn't, I didn't actually know that coaching, life coaching even existed in 2004. Mm. And, um, and then I ran out of money. <clears throat> that was the only problem that I had is I didn't know how to make money from meditation. <laughs> so <laughs> I... Uh, Just think about it a lot. Yes. So I went back into real estate for another year because I needed to bring in some money. Sylvain and I had a mortgage, bought a house and all that. And, uh, and that's when I w- discovered um, this thing called life coaching and uh, pretty much started my, um, I started a course and uh, started my business in February 2006. And uh, that was my second courageous decision because again, not knowing where the next uh, pace that was coming from, not knowing how it was going to work out. I was just following um, the desire that was in my heart, which was to go out and and have a job that, or a career that, what I thought to myself has uh, even more meaning. Which I, I don't want to be misunderstood when I say that, because I believe that regardless of what you do for a career, it's got to have some kind of meaning for you. Unless you're in a job that you suck at, that you hate, mm-hmm. well then that doesn't have any meaning for you. But you know, you could have a person, you know, delivering. Like I, I'll give an example. I, I um, just the other week, um, a lady who I, I've known for years um, got a job as a postie, deli- literally on the bike delivering mail. So excited. She was so excited, so <laughs> thrilled. And I thought, you know, good on you. You know, if that's how you find meaning, then rock on, you know. And I found that I need to find meaning by working with people to cold face of change and learning more about behavioral psychology and mindset strategies and universal patterns and codes of thinking and how all that works. Um, and that's what I've sort of established my... Um, my skill around over the last decade. Mm. So now I run my own training business. Mm. There's a word that you used in there quite a bit, uh, which is courageous and courage. And I mean, that was the title of the um, yeah. the uh, seminar that I came and did with you a couple of weeks ago. And I think that certainly a lot of people who've come in here and done this podcast, in my opinion, live a very courageous life because they have chosen to follow their heart, follow Mm. their passion, live in vulnerable states where you don't necessarily know where the next paycheck's coming Mm. from or the next job. Mm. How do you define courage? Because it's a word that's thrown around a lot, but I feel like a lot of people, myself included, until Mm. I really came Mm. to this workshop, Mm. don't really understand what it means to be fully courageous and fully yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, courage is uh, about vulnerability. And, uh, you know, it was only about, gee, a year ago that I came across a, a TED talk by, I think it was Brené Brown, who talks about courage and actually speaks specifically about vulnerability. Because if you think of the word courage, the first uh, three letters of the word courage, I think it's Latin or something for, um, you know, for, for heart. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, it's vulnerability. And as I said at that training, you know, the highest level of courage that exists is the embracing of vulnerability. And if you are someone who lives in your head and are stuck in your head, people who are stuck in the head tend to equate vulnerability to weakness when vulnerability is really uh, a deep sense of strength. And uh, courage to me is um, the vulnerability to decide to be loyal to what you stand for and what your values are and what you're about. 
and who you want to become and and what your next level of you is and full of um, nobility which simply means that you know you're better than what you were yesterday or you're better than what you were five years ago in 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 hopefully all areas of life right and um, and I think that if you're living a life of an adult a true adult is someone who embraces all those vulnerabilities and is not afraid to talk about anything to anyone mm. in order to help them with anything that they need help with. So it's, it's so courage is not, you know, beating your chest and saying, you know, look at me, I'm so strong. It's not that at all. It's a, an emotional state. It's a, it's a state of being where you've got the guts to say, you know what? I love playing the piano or I love people or I love you know, wanting to learn about this behavioral psychology so I can help you. Or, you know, we're in this room with your with your brother Nick, you know, and um, I dare say the piano is your passion. Is that one of your passions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's a very excitable fellow, Nick. Um, and You're lucky I he's got it. his pants on. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad he's got his pants on too. Um, you know, and whatever whatever the piano means to him, but he's drawn to it for some reason. And, and, and it's because on some level it contributes to his soul and it contributes to those listening and, and, and to the gifts that hopefully that gives other people. So uh, that's the thing is that, you know, I said at your training that you came to, Courage to Be, I think I said it on the Friday night, I quoted the Lebanese poet um, Khalil Gibran who wrote the mm. book called The Prophet in 1928 or whatever it was. And he said uh, along, the work, along the lines of whether when you're born, your work is placed in your heart and your job is to find it. Mm. And I believe that anyone who looks within and finds some kind of thing that they can get good at that takes a lot of guts because you can't necessarily find a uni course for it or a degree for it or a program for it or for someone to hold your hands for it or for someone to tell you all the steps for it. There are no steps. It's, it's something that you just need to uh, kind of move forward with um, with all of your commitment. And uh, it's just a matter of time that you'll succeed, whatever that means to you, you know. Mm, I love mm. that quote. I'd like to backtrack just for a second and, sure. and uh, look at um, the first sort of coaching session that you did, which was mm. a presentation to a rotary mm. group. Mm. And um, the the journey of that and the mm. feeling of that, because I know certainly when I start a new endeavor, um, like when I started doing this podcast, I'm like no one's going to fucking tune in. No one's going to give a shit. No mm. one's going to connect to it. It's mm. just going to be me. It's mm. so self-indulgent. It's so wanky. And mm. so this and that and all the voices in my head of, you know, bygone years of people telling me I'm not good enough or I'm too much or too small or all this yeah. white noise yeah. that's ego nonsense. Um, and so I was really fascinated and quite touched to hear your journey going into that to then fast track 10 years ahead to see mm. how uh, inspiring and, and insightful you are now mm. and how Thank you. attuned you are with, with this craft. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so um, when I started the journey, uh, my mentor, Sharon Pearson, said to all of us in our group uh, that you need to learn how to, by def- default, just to say yes and work out how, because that's the nature of nature. That's how, mm. you know, from my background, I'm brought up a Catholic, so from my background, you know, it's like, it's God-like. Nature is nature. It's God, universe, Buddha, whatever you want to call it. So when you don't abide by the laws of nature, you feel pain. And when you abide by the laws of nature, you're in flow. And say yes and work out how are six words that changed my life because that was the philosophy that I embraced from the very, very beginning. 
And when I started, I remember on the Monday morning, my first week in my business, I made that phone call to uh, a local Rotary group because I was, Sharon said to me, you know, you got to go and speak to harmless audiences. A harmless audience is an audience that is uh, not your market, someone that, uh, you know, your reputation will not get enhanced or dehanced, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I just happened to bring the local Rotary group and uh, this sweet, beautiful um, woman answered the phone. I knew she was in her 70s because uh, she called me dear when she addressed me on the phone. And um, I shared with her, I asked her if they, they took on people for uh, for talks and they did. And long and the short of it is they booked me in for 48 hours later on the Wednesday night. And um, I rocked up and I presented for about 20 minutes on a, a success principle from the coaching world called the map is not the territory. She thought I was there to talk about maps. Uh, I clearly was not clear in what it was that I was presenting. And um, the audience was definitely harmless and definitely safe because I had no clue what I was talking about. I was still learning my craft. And they just sat there in neutral territory, just looking at me with no expression. And, um, and then they gave me a nice polite clap at the end of the 20-minute talk, and, uh, and that was it. And um, that was my first step into vulnerability because when I left that room that night and I went to my car, I just broke down and cried and it was out of control because I, I didn't want to go back to the world I came from because that was enough. And I've just stepped into a new world that clearly is not functional yet. So where do you belong? You know, and that you can get you can get quite overwhelmed. And what I share with people who want to live their dreams is you need to be really it's part of that loyalty and vulnerability to your, to your feelings is if you if that's how you feel, feel it, let it go through your system. You know, if you want to cry, you cry, as long as you're not doing it in front of other people that make other people think, you know, what's wrong with you kind of thing. So I, um, I did that. And, uh, and as I shared with you at that seminar, you know, there was all these voices going on saying, you know, who the hell do you think you are? See, you've just been found out. You are not enough for this. And all these sorts of voices until one voice that came out and said, uh, good on you for having a go. Now go ahead and do it again tomorrow. So the next day when I woke up, I rang another Rotary group. I got a little bit more efficient in my language of what I wanted to talk about. And uh, I went and presented there and, and I just kept rocking up. In the meantime, I was practicing, doing my one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions and as that started to head toward 500 hours and beyond, I started noticing that I was actually pretty good at this. And, uh, and that made me become an even better one-to-many you know, presenter. And, um, and that's how the skill kind of built. And I'm so in total agreeance with um, Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers, where he says in that book that for most people to achieve mastery in any endeavor, you're looking at around 10,000 hours. Mm. And... Um, you know, it's it's misunderstood what he meant by that because there's a lot more to it than the 10,000 hours. But roughly speaking, it's you know eight to 10 years of solid investment of skill, of repetition, of getting good at what you do to get really, really good. Now, clearly, clearly there's some things in life that don't take that long, but um, there's a lot of other things that take that long. And, uh, you know, I haven't really felt like I've really hit my straps until only about seven or eight years in. And uh, so it's been the last two or three years that uh, has been um, phenomenal. And what I mean by that, is I was just saying to a friend of mine who's uh, in the police force, we were just talking uh, just recently and he was asking me about my work and I said, um, mate, it took me seven or eight years to build the courage to go out and speak to audiences about what I always want to talk about, which is love, love of self, love of others. Because the biggest problem that people have, the most common, if you were to go, what are the top five issues that people come to you with? If you were to ask me that question, I'd say, 
Well, the number one, the most popular reason why people would come to me was because of low self-esteem, lack of self-belief, low self-confidence, which all boils down to one thing, which is a lack of, a lack of self-love. So whatever audience I go to now, because of the, um, at the risk of sounding however this sounds to you, because of the skill that I've developed, I can talk about love in any capacity to any audience, whether it's corporate, leaders, salespeople, um, personal development, private individuals like where I met you. Um, doesn't matter who I'm talking I can talk about love with absolute certainty in a way that teaches people how to be who they need to become. Mm. And, um, and I just mentioned to you just before in the kitchen here, I said to you, uh, you know, you asked me, you know, who, who do you work with sort of thing? And, you know, just two weeks ago, I did, I did a presentation with a 42 corporates, you know, of which 20 of them were senior executives with lots of responsibilities of lots of people. And I talked to them about giving a shit. I spoke about love. Mm. And, um, the reason why it took me eight years to build that courage was because in my first six, seven years, I used to be afraid that if I started talking about love, I'd get someone heckling me or saying something wanky or something unresourceful, and I wouldn't know how to handle it. Whereas now, pretty much on my feet with an audience, I can pretty much handle anything that comes. So uh, it's been um, one heck of a journey, and I love that I can talk about this now. And that's why I love the title of that seminar that you came to, Courage to Be You, which is the name of the book that I'm writing, uh, because that is, in essence, the journey that, I've, um, that I have, that I inspire others to, you know, if they want to be that, to be that. Mm. One of the things that really stood out for me that you said there was be your own hero. Yeah. Um, mm. I'm like huge, was a huge uh, superhero comic book fan when i was a kid still you know i still watch wrestling that's like real life superheroes yeah what is it about love and about the sharing of the expression or the commitment to that that really that you wanted to find the courage to be able to stand up in front of people to express and to share that what was the drive me to do that is that what you mean i guess what i'm um Yeah. Mm. Just taking a swig of water. Yeah, so my philosophy in life is that the ultimate goal of every man and woman, not that I'm here to tell people what their goals are, but my goals anyway, are that we're reaching to do the best we can to reach out for and walk toward unconditional love. So in other words, loving someone purely because they exist and for no other reason and in all of our relationships we have got conditions so been married for 19 years it's a phenomenal marriage we love each other dearly uh, to say the very least but i also know that there's conditions because if i was to ever cheat i know that sylvana would uh, do something about that <laughs> let's just say that so in other words there's conditions there now the closest that we'll ever come to i believe and based on my life experience so far is the closest we'll come to to unconditional love at this stage of our development is a love that a father or mother has for their son or their daughter. We've got a pair of seven-year-old twin boys at home and um, I love them just for the mere fact that they exist. Now, are they, are they hard to love sometimes? Yeah. So am I <laughs> unconditional? No. So um, I believe that that's our journey is, is to um, reach back for that. I also believe that everything that happens in life happens to bring us closer to that love, that divine love. There's a big difference between divine love and the romantic love that we feel. I'll give you an example I'm talking about, Alistair, that I don't think I actually shared at the training. Um, in the world of AFL, 
which I don't talk about a lot, but um, <laughs> there was uh, just recently, like in the last month or two, there was a tragedy and um, the tragedy of um, the Adelaide senior coach who was stabbed to death by his uh, 20-year-old son or whatever. I can't remember how old he was. Tragedy. Absolute tragedy. man in his peak, 54 years old, well-respected, well-regarded, uh, married, two kids, old, older daughter, younger son, and the son comes home on something and uh, for whatever the background to all of this was, he stabbed his father to death. Now, it's a tragedy to say the extreme least. Have no clue, not even a beginning to understand what the what his wife is going through now left with this situation where her husband's dead and she's got a son incarcerated because he was the murderer. I mean, my God, it's beyond any, any thought or imagination. And um, that happened uh, early on in that particular week and the football team had to play a match on the following weekend which they ended up abandoning because of the emotional stress first time ever in the history of AFL however the team that I follow played on the Friday night which means they opened the round of footy that weekend that was Collingwood and Hawthorne and this is the first time in my following of 25 years of following a sport such as footy I mean for God's sake it's just footy that I noticed a unity I have never, ever seen before, where when the game finished, there was no song, there was no dance, there was no celebration. It was two teams who had just been battling for the last 100 minutes. They came together in the middle of the ground, created a circle. The coach came out, the coaches came out. They all stood in alternating, you know, Collingwood, Hawthorne, whatever, arms around each other, bowing their heads in silence, respecting this uh, fellow that, uh, that had this, you know, that was killed. And I remember sitting there as I was watching this, forgetting that my team had lost, not even involved in the emotion of all that crap, but just in awe of the the unity, the love, the genuine deep sense of care and giving a shit that 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 football community you know demonstrated. There were seventy five thousand people at that game. All of them stayed. All of them silent. All of them in respect. Everyone treating each other with that extra special attention of care. And why am I sharing this with you? Because this is what I believe is always happening. Sometimes things happen in life that in that moment, for that year, for that week, for that minute, we label as a tragedy, which is an accurate description. But overall, everything in life is designed to bring us closer to God, closer to heart, closer to love, closer to that unconditional love. And it's just that life has got all kinds of ways of whacking us back into order. And one of my sayings in life is that you are either squeezing life or life is squeezing you. Someone is squeezing someone, so you may as well squeeze life because otherwise you're going to cop a squeeze at some stage. So that's a classic example of where a, a, a deeply tragic thing happens. And sometimes that's what has to happen to bring us closer together as a, as a, as a humanity. And, uh, and I think that if people like you, me, Nick here... You know, we um, do the things that we love. We become loyal to what it is that we're becoming. We become happier, more joyous people. And by that, I don't mean you're walking around with a smile, a plaster of your face. I mean that you're walking around with a sense of inner giggle, a sense of inner deep satisfaction and gratitude for life and love and all good things. And that you become a wonderful inspiration to others. You know, for example, going back to the example of the piano playing here with your brother Nick here. I mean, I don't know how to play the piano. I'm not into the piano. I'm, I mean, but... If he was to become, or maybe is, I don't know. How many years have you been playing the piano for, Nick? 18. So you're pretty good at it? I don't know. Yes, he's very good. That means, 
do you feel his soul when he plays? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he stirs you with his skill. So um, now he does that because he loves it. And, and he can justify and tell us why he loves it if we would ask him. Um, but the point is the impact that it makes on others listening. So in other words, when you're committed to becoming what you need to become and to tap into that thing that Gibran spoke about, which is what is in your heart and make that your mission in life, and you actually feel happy and grat- gratified at that, um, you, you, you create a, an incredible ripple effect of those around you because people notice everything. Mm. And um, that's how it is you create change. Mm. And as I say to all the coaches, I've trained over 4,000 coaches now, I say to them, listen, your mission is not to save the world. The world doesn't care. It's about you becoming who you need to become next so you can have that ripple effect on those who are ready to receive whatever they're there to receive so they can then be encouraged to follow their dream and their soul. Most people won't at this stage. That's just how it is. But those who do, phenomenal. And uh, so my philosophy is simple, is that everything in life is designed to bring us closer to that soul, to that soul mission. Mm. And sometimes, unfortunately... It has to happen in very, very tragic circumstances like what we experienced with uh, that story I just shared with you. Mm. And of course, we can rattle off lots of tragedies, can't we? You know, so where they bring us closer together. Look at the unity of the world after 9-11. Look at what that did as much as we had to stretch the band from one end to the other to create that. And I reckon in life, on an individual level, you don't have to go through tragedy or dark night of the soul or depression to get to love. You can do that by choice. That's certainly been my experience anyway. Mm. And having that inner giggle, that inner joy. Uh, and joy, as you say, doesn't necessarily translate to happiness. Mm. Joy is, um, for me anyway, joy can be when you you can be having a, a horrible time and still be in joy. It's, I guess, you're still recognizing the cosmic joke while you're going through whatever totally. it is that you're going through. And, and laughing at yourself and becoming your own source of entertainment. And yeah. notice how ridiculous we all are. Mm. Totally. Absolutely. Um, how important do you think that is to not take yourself so seriously? Oh, very important. It's everything. We're not attracted to dark, heavy energies. People who take themselves, you know, as I said in the training, who suffer from terminal seriousness. <laughs> We're attracted to people who um, are light in the joy that they exist. And I know, I'm, I'm aware of the risk of this sounding fluffy duck, but that's just how it is, dude. I mean, it's just mm. when someone is happy because of their, they're doing what makes their heart sing, you know, they're light energy. They feel great to be with. And, um, and that has an impact, definitely. And, um, and you never arrive to a place where you finally can say to yourself, no, I'm now over myself. It's a continual journey until we breathe our last breath. And, um, and that is, uh, that's part of that, what we spoke about 10 minutes ago vulnerability mm. so um you know take yourself lightly it's not that big a deal you know mm. and in that in that vulnerability i mean one of the biggest things for me that i took away from that was um the dark shades as well as the light yeah um which is kind of not antithetical to what you were just saying sure in fact it's completely congruent with mm. what you were saying um but there's this idea that our ugly side our pain and fears and all that our anger is something that should be pushed to the side or Mm. suppressed or not addressed or Mm. but it's not about that to be truly vulnerable is to actually stand in that and to to allow people to see that or to feel that or to let it run or to whatever it may be um that was a that was a huge sort of takeaway for me to go that's what 100 percent is yeah if you if you're not giving that then you're giving 80 percent. i'll say two more accurately it's 
feeling those feelings of anger, whatever those dark feelings, unresourceful feelings, whatever negative feelings, whatever you want to label it as, mm. you need to feel through them. And but most of the time, you need to do that on your own mm. because to get angry in front of someone that you love, which means now you're spitting out fire to them, you can create more harm than good. Mm. So it's about uh, going through those feelings. I'll give you an example. So a lot of people, will, uh, when people start their journey into their uh, dreams, if you like, because as I said to you, living your dream is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, it, it really isn't. It's certainly not. And, um, you know, and part of those foibles and vulnerabilities and fears that you go through is that sometimes you'll go through a situation where you feel really sorry for yourself. And as I say to the coaches, I say to them, you know, just because you're learning all of these uh, human behavioral strategies, that doesn't mean that you become emotionally bulletproof. It means that if you're feeling sorry for yourself, then go away somewhere in a room somewhere and do it well and do it thoroughly for two, three, four hours. As long as you get over it and then you, when you walk out and face the world again, you're ready to keep rocking on. So um, it's, 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 it's all of that. It's being loyal to those. Mm. And um, when you embrace all of that without labeling it as, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> Um, no, there's actually nothing wrong with you. It's just the human condition. Mm. So, uh, you know, surf through it. And, uh, and as I said to, uh, said to you guys on that, that uh, weekend, you know, if you're in hell, keep moving. Mm. Don't stay. Don't stop. Don't go back. You can't go back in reverse through the tunnel. You've got to keep walking through it. And sometimes we go through our own mini versions of that hell, whether it's a crappy day emotionally or you've been rejected or something. Um, move on. You've got to keep moving. Mm. Because through movement comes clarity, which is what nature teaches us. Mm, it's, it's having an emotional fitness yes. and being prepared to walk through the fire to That's get right. to where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so something in all of this, in the film world or the entertainment industry, and I mean, I'm going to use that as an example sure. because that's my reference yeah, point, sure. but I feel like it's kind of a universal uh, thing. Um, and I think that a lot of people in the entertainment industry struggle with feeling disempowered because, you know, you're kind of, there's this idea that your um, life is in the lap of the job gods, so to speak. Mm. And particularly, I think, for actors, perhaps for directors and writers as well, maybe not so much for producers, but there's this feeling that I, with a lot of people that I meet, that they are out of control of their dreams um, and their destiny how would you sort of navigate through that or navigate around that well the key the essence is keep moving so i mean there was many times in my first two or three years where i thought uh, this is not going to work out um, i don't know how long i can sustain this for fantastical thoughts of going back to a job applying for jobs nearly quitting three times in my first year all these things it was it was thinking it was allowing those feelings and those thoughts to happen fully without suppressing them or ignoring them or saying I shouldn't be thinking like that, I would actually f- fully satisfy those thoughts and think them through whilst I'll be turning up to an appointment to go and coach someone or meet someone for a potential training opportunity or something. And I would just keep showing up everywhere all the time. I think it was Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, one of those guys said 80, 90% of success is showing up. So um, it's, and, and, and keep moving, keep taking actions that bring you closer to whatever you think your dream is. The other thing is that people uh, are attached to this thing called clarity sometimes. And um, you'll never have clarity. I mean, that's just it's an urban myth. You'll, never, you'll, you'll only be as clear as your headlights will shine, which will be a, you know, under a year. You know, trying to picture where you're going to be in five years' time, sure, have some fun with that using your imagination. But uh, you, you're limited by the filters of this current year. So as we're speaking now, it's 2015. 
we're limited by 2015. I mean, the 2001 version of you could not see where you were going to be at in 2015. There's just no way. So 2015 can't see 2025. So to try to work out as an actor, as a performer, or whatever your song is, to try to work out where you think you're going to be in 2021, you've got no hope in hell because you're limited by 2015. Mm. So that's why all you can do is focus on what you have right now in front of you and keep moving forward, hurling yourself in the general direction of what you, where you think you need to be. Mm. And, and, and it's just a matter of time. Mm. And um, it's not yeah. investing in an outcome, I think, is another totally. important thing. It's Practicing non-attachment. Practicing non-attachment and um, even not to be so Buddhist to, well, I guess this is completely Buddhist, to enjoy the journey, mm. to, like in, I guess, invest in the journey of mm. where you're going to go. Um, the John Lennon thing of life's what happens when you're busy making plans. Yeah. Uh, that's right you know that's that's so true for everything and i think Mm. particularly in a creative field yeah uh and i think that a lot of people get stuck in uncertainty Mm. and as i say i think this is becoming a universal truth there's so little job stability in the current climate you know the demand for jobs is higher than it's ever been in a um in a situation where there's less jobs Mm. than there have ever been Mm. and trying to find certainty in that is fucking hard. Yeah. Uh, I start doing a podcast and then I know that every week, once a week I'll do a recording, once a week I'll edit one, once a week I'm going to put one on Facebook. Yeah. And that's some certainty. That's me looking forward to something yes. every week. Yes. And that's something that um, you spoke about again uh, mm. as a way to navigate through mm. uh, challenges mm. with a ritual. Yes, I listed the six core needs that Tony Robbins talks about, and then I gave you my interpretation of how they work. Mm. And uh, you know, those first two needs of those six are the balance of certainty and uncertainty. And uh, you know, it's been said by many that you know, um, the more uncertainty you can embrace, and the more the more <clears throat> comfortable you become with ambiguity and uncertainty, the more success you will have. So true in everything in life. And um, one of my interpretations of this is that you need to have established routines or rituals that satisfy your need for comfort or certainty. So then you can handle more of the uncertainty. And uh, so, uh, in, for example, in my case, uh, running is one of my um, things that I love doing. I love competing and, um, and all that sort of stuff and being part of a running coach group and all that sort of thing. And that's a ritual that I do four or five times a week consistently, pretty much 50 weeks of the year. And uh, that's when I first started with my coaching and training business, that was even more important then than it is now. Because that routine of having something to look forward to that was familiar, that satisfied my need for comfort, certainty, safety, stability, security, and knownness and familiarity, gave me enough energy to handle the unfamiliarity, the unknown of the next day. Because there were so many things in my first year I did that I'd never done before. Mm. There were so many nights I didn't sleep because I didn't because I'd be thinking in the middle of the night, "What am I doing tomorrow? Oh, I'm doing that. I haven't done that before. God, I hope I'm not going to be found out tomorrow." And all <laughs> the crap that goes with that. And I, I would just go and rock up and do it. But the point is that uh, two things here. One, yes, the, the certainty is taken care of through routine. But also when you've got a ritual or a routine that is uh, something that you do, I'll use the word ritual, a ritual that you have that you do three to five times a week. And when you, when you think about it, your energy goes up because you love doing it. Then you're giving yourself something to look forward to, which is what I call hope. And by hope, I don't mean hope, wishing, waiting. I mean hope is in looking forward to something that makes mm. you feel good while you're embracing the unfamiliar in the field of your endeavor. And that is a very intelligent, sustainable, aware way of managing uncertainty. 
rather than letting go of all knownness. Mm. And I think another thing that uh, feeds into that um, is money and how people, my peers, myself included, relate to money on an energetic level, the way that they value themselves. I spent 10 years pretty much working for free, doing jobs. I mean, I, I got paid to do jobs, but I felt like I was subsidizing my creative life by doing working at a cinema or at a, at a bar or whatever it was at the time uh, to arrive at a point now where I'm happy to charge what I feel is a good value for um, what I do. And now I'm even looking at that going, I'm undervaluing what I do. Mm. Uh, and that's for fear of rejection mm. or um, fear of being found out or not myself valuing it. Mm. Uh, and one of the things you said was if people aren't willing to pay what you value it at, it's either they don't value what you're offering yes. or they don't value themselves. That's right. Um, and that was a really powerful thing tied in with the idea that your relationship to money is a magnification of your relationship to sort of everything else. You remember my words well. <laughs> That's very impressive. Well, thank you. Mm. I, uh, I pride myself on my memory yeah. and attention yeah. to detail. Yeah. And I think that at the core of all that is what coaching is all about it's not fixing the problem. It's fixing the thinking that causes the problem. It's shifting the thinking that created the problem. The Sorry, fix, I shouldn't say yeah. fixing. It's yeah. shifting the thinking yeah. that causes the problem. Yeah. And I suppose one of the reasons that I wanted to invite you into this podcast world is for myself, selfishly, and for the people who listen to this as well, that perhaps there is some insight that can be found about why it is that we undervalue ourselves on an artistic level mm. and what the thinking is and how we can empower ourselves to maybe change that way of thinking, mm. shift that way mm, of thinking. Totally. So not even on an artistic level, on many levels. So most people, as I said to you a few moments ago, that the number one, the most popular problem I've come across in my work is uh, people with low self-esteem. You're not born with uh, low self-esteem. Low self-esteem comes because of one of two reasons. You either decided to have low self-esteem, which I'm going to explain what I mean by that, or uh, someone taught you how to have low self-esteem. So... Most families are dysfunctional. Most nests that babies are born in are dysfunctional. And I've seen that more than ever now that I've got my boys in school and just being exposed to different things. And um, so the things that are said to kids at a very young age, it's not surprising that most kids who grow up as adults are living that life of quiet desperation where there's a gross disparity between what you see on the outside and what's going on on the inside. And, and, and uh, self-esteem, self-belief is not something that is... Um, uh, in most people and that's because they have either been taught to be with low self-esteem or as i said just a moment ago that uh, they decided and then let me explain what i mean by that so sometimes what happens is uh, uh well the best way to explain it is the example i gave you in the training which was um, a young woman 34 years of age coaching her uh wanted to reconnect with that effervescent joyous living you know she wanted to uh, she was just really really beating herself up with low self-esteem and um, now this is totally out of context, so just go with this because I can't give you the whole hour of the conversation I had with her. Mm. But the essence of it was I asked her one question that was pivotal. And I said to her, when did you decide to have low self-esteem? Now, she eventually came around to the answer, which was that something happened when she was 15. And, and it didn't actually matter what happened, when she was, what happened when she was 15. But what was important was how did she respond to what happened when she was 15? So this thing that happened when she was 15, she took it very, very deeply personally. 
And as a result of that, she decided that the best strategy to handle any potential future reoccurrences was to hide, not shine, not take responsibility and just play life away in the background. And that was the best strategy that she had to manage what happened when she was 15. However, that became a habit. That became a ritual, an unresourceful ritual. After 3, 4, 5, 10, 19 years, you forget that that's something that you created. Mm. And that becomes your new identity. So 19 years later, she's walking around going, there's something wrong with me. Why am I feeling like this? I don't know why. When it was something that she created through the decision that she was made when she was 15. So one of the um, definitions of coaching is that coaching is about reconnecting the client to misplaced resources. So what we did in that session was uh, I asked her about what she was like when she was 14, 13, 12. And she described this incredible, she described what she wanted to become when she was 14. So I just, um, in the coaching session, I got her to reconnect to that 14-year-old version of her. And she re-engaged with that self-esteem that she'd been looking for. So most people uh, are walking around with, you know, beating themselves up with lack of self-belief because of something that they decided without conscious awareness that they that they worked with them when they were ten or twelve or fifteen or whatever happened, that no longer works when you're forty five or thirty five or fifty or whatever age you are. So, um, and and this is one of the things that coaching does so beautifully is that when you know the patterns of how people create these uh, beliefs, you can change them pretty quickly. You can shift the thinking, as as we were saying. Mm. So, uh, you know, the reason why people don't back themselves is not because there's any truth in that they're not enough. It's because of um, the conditions of what they've made their environment mean and what other people have said to them in the past. And listen, And the other thing I'm going to add to that, Alistair, is listening to the wrong people and uh, taking advice from people that shouldn't be taking advice from. And that's mm. another thing we spoke about, which is you should only take advice from people who have got the results that you are wanting in a particular field, mm. who have become what you want to become. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunately, it's too many people listen to the wrong people for advice, people who don't have the results in that particular area and uh, combine that with what they were taught as children and all that equals low self-esteem and that's mm. what holds most people back and that's the reason why and those voices kind of perpetuate the cycle in your head like we were talking about before i can isolate uh quite specifically when i hear a voice that's saying and i've got it going in my head right now mm. uh, as a, like an example um of saying why the fuck would you do that you're not yeah. good enough to do that who are you you're not yeah. a you know expert in yeah. this and yeah yeah, yeah. Then, the, you know, now I've got the kind of counter voicing that's not telling it to shut up. It's just saying, cool, thanks for your opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can go and take that into the corner now. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think that navigating your way through that self-esteem and finding yourself and finding what you want to do. I mean, I remember coming out of that workshop, I felt fucking amazing. Like even just after the Friday night, I felt absolutely fantastic. And I felt like here is a way of being that I really connect to. Um, not not necessarily from a coaching point of view or sure. from stepping into that world. But from a personal perspective. From a personal perspective, mm. yeah. Um, you mentioned before that you have been married for 19 years. Mm. And you've got a couple of beautiful kids. Mm. And I remember you tell some amazing stories. And every time you would bring up your wife, Silvana, you would glow there's this really beautiful understanding and quality that you guys share and one of the big topics that i like talking with the guests about is intimate relationships because Mm. one of the things that is a through line not from my personal experience necessarily but from my observations and from people who've come in 
is there seems to be a difficulty in the entertainment industry in sustaining intimate relationships. And the chorus line, if you like, is that it's the long work hours, you know, it's the instability, it's the travel, it's the, um, you know, that people uh, can be quite intimate in their job. Um, You know, if you're an actor, you might be um, literally replicating the emotional experience of being in a relationship with another person on Mm. set. Yeah. Um, if you're a producer or director or writer or, or a cog in the machine, you're working 16 hour days. You don't, you know, you don't want to go out or all this. But now that I'm sitting here talking to you about it, I don't think that's really what the issue is at hand. It's the thinking. It's the thinking. It's understanding the code of man and code of woman mm, and how it all works. Yeah. I guess the question that I'm arriving at eventually in this <laughs> in this long tangent is. Uh, what do you what what are your thoughts on that and how have you managed to sustain your relationship and keep it fresh and keep it beautiful and keep it as a um this concept that you brought which is there's no this or that it's this and that in a relationship yeah yeah so the the purpose of a proper mature grown-up relationship is to magnify each other's essence, to magnify each other's beauty, to magnify each other's strengths, to magnify your purpose, whatever it is that you're there to magnify. Unfortunately, in most relationships, when one wants to, when the husband or the wife, one or the other, wants to go off and try something, the other one complains and says, why do you get to go and do that and I have to be stuck here with the kids? Or why do you have to go and do that? I'm stuck in this hellhole of a job or whatever. That's a child-based relationship. An adult relationship is that your purpose is that, your mission is simple, to make sure that your partner is happy. Because mm. if your partner's happy, you're happy. So how do you do that? It's by understanding the relationship codes. Man needs to be appreciated and woman needs to be understood. This is not my opinion. This is not my thoughts. This is just the patterns of how we're structured. In other words, one of the other needs that we spoke about at Courage to Be You was the importance of satisfying that need for significance, which is also known as respect. So you need to respect each other, not just by what you say, but what by what you do and who you're being. And... Um, you know, I remember the second time I wanted to have a, have a crack at living my dream was uh, when I started my coaching business. Sylvain didn't say. She could have said, this is the second time you're doing this. First time it didn't work out. And I'm still stuck in this job that I hate. And I want to have kids. And the reason why I'm not having kids is because I'm stuck in this job. She didn't say any of that. She just said, love, if that's what you want to do, go for it. I'm here to support you no matter what. And, um, and that gave me that incredible... Uh, next level of oomph and confidence or whatever to go and give it a red hot go and with her support unconditional the way through and now we have a lifestyle which is beyond incredible and what i mean by that is that we've got these two beautiful seven-year-old kids beautiful kids you know fully functioning there's nothing wrong with them in the sense of physical mental and they're like they're fine kids we're lucky um i work 12 to 15 days a month uh you know, I make the average salary of Australia probably every six weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm home 12 to 15 days a month. And Sylvana doesn't have to work. If she wants to work, she can. She, she doesn't want to work. She's, she, she's got plenty of work looking after, you know, the, the boys, the kids, and, um, and me <laughs> and herself <laughs> and doing whatever she wants to do. It's fantastic. So this has happened because of faith, because of trust, because of never settling in a relationship challenging each other without the other person retaliating or reacting but asking the fundamental truth and that is hold on is what my wife or is what my husband's saying right now is that accurate and if it's accurate 
let's get over ourselves and let's you know accept that and keep moving forward mm. rather than react retaliating reacting like children do and the other thing is that we are each other's most loyal number one yes we've got kids yes at times of course the boys are number one but i'm talking from a soul emotional overall life perspective where each other's number one and um I will never ever talk about things to other people about her that would disrespect her in any way. For example, you know, I was out for dinner the other night and uh, a friend of mine was talking about something quite private between him and his wife that was inappropriate, I thought, for him to share with me. And I was thinking, I remember sitting there thinking, I've never spoken about things that are no one's business between me and Silvana to anyone else unless I'm doing it for a particular reason, but I can't even think of Well, we just don't talk about it. We look after each other. We've got each other's back. We're loyal to each other. We uh, admire each other. We look out. We love each other. We uh, uh, are each other's heroes. Um, we are who we are because of each other. And um, and she's brilliant at satisfying my need for appreciation. And I'm reasonably good at hopefully satisfying her need for uh, being being understood and significance and all those things. So um, and it's and and the mark of an adult relationship is how robust are your conversations. Mm-hmm. how many different things can you talk about that challenge each other without taking personal offense and um, we can do a lot of that and, and I hope that we're providing you know, good examples to our kids in terms of who they need to be as men as they grow up mm. so it's, it, it's, it's just because you're in a good relationship it doesn't mean you've made it now and it's all good for the rest of your life it's something you've got to keep working on it's like you can't just say I'm going to go and do my run and that's it for the rest of my life or I'm going to have my <laughs> dinner now like Nick's having his lunch that's it He's had his lunch. No more lunches for Nick. He's yeah, done because that's done. it. That's yeah, done for the rest of his life. Lunch. He's arrived. Now, people do that with their relationships. They go, oh, I've found my love. I'm there. I've made it. It's like, no, you've got to keep having lunch, dude. You're yeah. going to have to keep cooking every day and be creative and find different ways of nutrifying your body. It's the same with love. You've got to keep working on finding different ways of keeping each other mm. fascinated, interested, sparked, lit up, turned in, turned on switched on you know you've got to be creative with these things mm. and um and that takes two adults to do that mm. and uh unfortunately i know this sounds however this comes across but my experience so far in life has been that most adult bodies walking around are emotionally adolescent and don't know how to do that mm. um it's not their fault it's just that no one's taught them or led them or there hasn't been an example around them and um my good fortune has been that by learning the craft of uh, human relationships, human behavior, and all the stuff that goes with the coaching stuff that I do, uh, it's actually my relationship has improved immensely because of what I've learned about um, human behavioral psychology and mindset strategies. So as you know, that's all I spoke about for two and a half days when I met you. So, mm. Mm. And my brain was all over the ceiling by the end of that uh, two and a half days. Yeah, I think you know a big point of what you're saying is in a relationship is about um, choosing love over being right. Yes, totally. Um, and really satisfying a, a need for uh, really satisfying a need for significance or un- understanding or appreciation. Yeah, what you just said is really important because um, look, the secrets to all is the secrets. I don't know what the words are, but whatever you want to call it, <laughs> secrets to all great relationships is a man sometimes has to know when to shut up. Mm. So. Uh, you know, we were away recently. Um, I went and did the Gold Coast Half Marathon and we were in Gold Coast for a week with the kids and clearly my wife wasn't enjoying being there and we were in 
it was just an ordinary holiday for many reasons. But anyway, the point being that she hated being there, didn't want to be there. She got emotional about that. She was saying lots of things that didn't weren't quite right. But there was a couple of things she said to me that were wrong factually that I could have retaliated by saying, well, actually, and then we would have had an argument over something that just didn't matter. Mm. Instead, I just shut up. I nodded my head and uh, just let it go. It's what we called in the training Tai Chi, yeah, you know, yeah. letting, it, letting it through to the keep, letting it let the energy flow through you or beside you to the back. And I, I just I just read the situation for what it was. And I don't want to sound like, you know, a know-it-all or whatever, but I just, you could read it as, okay, she doesn't want to be here. She's here to support me for my race. Um, let's look at it for what it is. Let's just sail through this. And when we get home, things will settle down and she'll be back to normal again based on how she feels normal is. And just needed to put up with and shut up. You know mm. what I mean? So sometimes you just got to sacrifice your own need to be right, as you were saying, to just go with what the moment needs. And uh, it's not about proving anything. It's about, um, you know, speaking about the word right, it's about doing the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing is not doing anything mm. <laughs> rather than trying to prove that you're factually correct or accurate or whatever or what you're saying is wrong or what you're saying is wrong or whatever. Mm. It's um, about just going with the flow sometimes. And it's easier said than done. It really is hard to do. But mm. um, if you really value the person that you're with immensely, then you'll sacrifice your own need to be right to be right to be right in the relationship to be good mm. because if oh, this is going to sound use crude terms but if she wins you win because love wins yeah yeah it does sound corny you're right but uh, you're right well it's also <laughs> using you know using crude terms like winning and losing yeah, where sure. where really the only thing that should be the highest priority should always be yeah. being in love yeah if you truly feel that way about someone that's my personal belief and the other thing I want to say to this also, Alistair, is that, and, and some people might not agree with this, but uh, it's just how it is, is love is a choice. Mm. It is a choice. Some people think, oh, I'll meet someone, just fall in love, and that's just how it happens. It's determined by something outside of me. Uh, no, it's a choice. When you meet someone that you like and you're attracted to, what you decide to think about that person, what you make it mean, and the f thoughts you decide to focus on will determine your choice of whether you fall in love or whether you don't. Mm. It's not something that just happens automatically. And there are going to be some listeners who will disagree with what I'm saying. But let me tell you, I'm not talking about the first one month or three months of the relationship. I'm not talking about the honeymoon period. Mm. I'm talking about 20 years in. How does it... Because we've been married for 19, but we've been together dating since 1993. Mm. So it's been 22 years. How does this get sustained at the level that it is? Because every moment is a choice. You know... Um, Earlier this year, we were at Moomba with the kids, and it was a it was a sunny day. The place just seemed to be full of idiots that day. It's just how it was, <laughs> and people were pushing in cues, disrespectful, and all this, and we were getting each other's nerves. One one of our boys wanted to go on the first wheel, the other one wanted to go on this other ride, and it was all over the place. We we're, were meant to be there for an hour. Three hours later, we're still there. We're getting all shitty with each other, and uh, you know, she said some things that weren't you know whatever, and I said some things, but. At that moment, I remember thinking, my God, you are so hard to love right now. And it wasn't like I had to make a choice in that moment to love or not love. I just made the choice to not respond because it just wasn't appropriate. Then later on, as we left the arena and we went into our car and we started driving home, I just looked at her and I said, oh, let's just forget about the last three hours. Sorry for what I said. And she said the same thing. There you go. The reset button was pressed and we're back with love mm. again. 
So it's a choice. Mm. It's a continual choice like everything in life is, Alistair. Mm. And too many people in, in, uh, who are emotionally adolescent believe, oh, no, it's just I either love him or I don't. No, it's, an, it's a choice because what you do is people need to understand you're not falling in love with a person. You're falling in love with their values. Mm. And that's what sustains you in life. Shut the front door. <laughs> you just gave me a little bit of an aneurysm. Oh, cool. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that I have been learning a lot this year is that life has the meaning that you give it. Yeah, and totally. everything in life has the meaning that you give it. And one of the things that is, that's a Tony Robbins thing, I think. Mm, mm. Um, and one of the things, another thing that you talked a lot about is that fundamentally everything is meaningless yeah and i don't mean that like in a um, in a negative way or an existential way mm. but that we are meaning making machines yeah, quote right. unquote yeah uh you yeah uh and i think that's something that is very congruent with what you're saying is mm. that we choose the meaning that we are giving things we choose the values that we want we choose what we want to attract into our lives and what we want to have and we choose our thoughts our thoughts don't choose us mm. and i think something that we have become stuck in as people in this day and age particularly with iphone with technology the way it is is that the heart is a tool for the mind but that's actually us about tits mm. Mm. because yeah. really the mind is a tool for the spirit and for yeah. the soul and for the mm. heart and for love in my opinion anyway mm. uh, and you know coming back to that, coming back to that unconditional love is the next step in evolution, really, yeah. I think. Yeah, there's a few more steps to go before we get to that. Yeah, well. Yeah. But that's the end game. Well, for want of better terms, the destination of some point. Mm. Yeah. Um, you said earlier that you were brought up Catholic. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. Has that. Are you quite, are you religious? No. A Catholic? No. no, I'm not a practicing Catholic. Our boys go to Catholic school because they needed a values compass. Mm. So you need to give them values compass. But uh, the essence of the story of Christ and how it all works and the, um, the uh, uh, what's the word, the philosophy of it all, I agree with. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's not about re which religion you, you're at. It's, it's about, uh, you know, what do you value? It's all the things we've been saying for the last hour and a bit now, Alistair. So, um, yeah, I was brought up in a Catholic environment and there was lots of... Uh, good things that we were taught in terms of, as I said, a values compass. So, for example, what I mean by values compass is uh, the boys are going next door to the school there and they're taught about the stories of Christ and the Bible and all the rest of it, and that's all fine and well. The top three values of the school are faith, hope, and love. Mm. And um, they're the values that uh, we do our best to espouse. And I believe that um, they need some sort of compass. And then what happens is when they are able to think on their own two feet, if they decide to do something different, fine, as long as they've got a compass of some direction. So, um, yeah, the, the Catholic ethos is something that um, has certainly created the foundations in how we see things, but it's not something that I go out there espousing because um, you need to respect, uh, especially in Australia, because we're so multicultural, you know, you've got to respect that anytime mm -hmm. I'm running a training, there's probably up to 20 different religions in my rooms. So what I talk about is um, the philosophy of how to live a good life the philosophy of how to love and all the things we've been talking about. And everyone translates that into their own filters, through their own filters, whether it's through Buddha, through Muslim, through Catholic, through whatever the, the belief is, or the atheist even, you know, whatever they believe, mm. it's just translating it through your own map of reality. Mm. 
Nick and I were brought up Jewish. We went to Jewish school. So I'm always very curious. I mean, we're not religious at all, but I think, again, it's a value system that mm. we have had instilled in us, which is, you know, quite heavily found uh, grounded in um, family, tradition, yes. love, yeah. hope. Yeah. Um, do you have an idea of, or do you believe in a God or a divine kind of spirit or energy? What is that for you? Hmm. Yeah, I believe uh, that, for, I don't know if this is going to be valuable to your listeners, but for what, for what it's worth, uh, and this is going to be misunderstood by some, but uh, I believe that we are all pieces of God, that we are, this is how I look at it. Our bodies are beyond imagination in terms of how fascinating they are. And but Deepak Chopra says there's 96 trillion cells in your body and in my body and in Nick's body here. A lot of, tr- lot of cells, a lot of complications and lots of stuff going on. <laughs> Well, my philosophy is that we are so. How do I say? I'll, I'll get to what I'll get to this now. I'll get to what I'm going to answer your question in about one minute because I need to explain this first. <laughs> is that um, in coaching we say that the greatest fear that people have is not a fear of success or a fear of failure; it's a fear of their own magnificence, or another way of saying it, a fear of their own divinity, mm. whether they're aware of it or whether they're not. And that magnificence or that divinity is the source that created our bodies. I believe that you and I, not as people, not, not, not Alistair and Joe and Nick here, we're talking the soul spirit of you, who you are in essence, is what created the body that we are in. Now, what kind of a being can do that beyond our imagination? It's beyond anything that we know. So, um, you know, again, I don't want to put a cliche here, but it is a cliche, is that we're... You know, and I asked the room this, if you remember, I said, uh, you know, who believes that we are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience? A philosopher said that. I can't remember who it was. And, and most of them put their hand up. And so my belief is that we're here having a physical experience in this world, experiencing this adventure of contrast and uh, limitations uh, in order to find ourselves again, whatever mm-hmm. that means. But in essence, I think that we are... Lao Tzu, the, the fellow, the philosopher, the Chinese philosopher who wrote the, um, I think it's called the Ting Dei Chao, the, the, the Thai, the, I forget the, uh, the actual label for it, the philosophy. He was, a, he was a phenomenal philosopher. And he said that we aren't doing anything. We are being done. So in other words, um, it's an illusion that we think that we're doing what we're doing. Everything is actually happening automatically. And this comment is opening up a whole other tin of worms, which we probably haven't got time to go into here. But um, so you asked me what I believe. I believe that um, we're here just to reconnect with uh, who we have always been, which is a um, a drop of God in the ocean, if that makes sense. Mm. And to reconnect to that, that magnificence, that divinity, which is why um, part of that philosophy is that we're, our ultimate goal is to connect to unconditional love, which is that divine love, which is beyond any love we experience in our relationships. Mm. so um yeah that's kind of the essence of it that ties in beautifully to i mean one of the thing another thing i like to ask about is what you think the meaning of life is and you've kind of answered that in that um and i think another great thing that you that we explored on that day is that the ego loves complexity Mm. but the heart the consciousness thrives in simplicity Mm. and that the complexity is the um, enemy of productivity or enemy um, of execution enemy of execution yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a, a great uh, 
there's this podcast that I listen to, which is this is what has inspired this with a guy, a comedian named Pete Holmes, and he has this beautiful analogy that I love, which is that ego is the devil and consciousness is God. Mm. Um, and I really, as I say, I'm not a religious person, but I certainly believe that um, divinity or God or whatever is love and it is that unconditional love. Love, malice, all fear. It, it is very, very powerful. Um, a simple everyday example. You're driving down the street, you've done the wrong thing, you've cut someone off, the person's getting angry with you, giving you the bird and all the rest of it, and you give them an apologetic wave. And all of a sudden, that's, that's, a, that's an expression of love. You've just been given a flamethrower of fear. You wave apologetically because you've fucked up. You made a mistake. Mm. You wave apologetically. And I'm telling you, every time you do that, that person melts. And I want to remember melts is they don't fall in love with you. That's not what I mean. What I mean is the, the energy behind the bird or the behind their reaction dissipates like that mm. to neutrality. That's what I mean by, about love melts or fear because I don't want to, I want this to be useful what we're talking about here. Another example, you know, um, I cut um, this, I, I nearly ran this fellow over once coming home from one of my trainings and um, he was a very dangerous looking character and he was walking toward my house like he was going to kill me and I thought, my God, this house going to end. And um, I apologized for the mistake that I made in nearly killing him <laughs> and, I, and I said sorry to him, I don't know, three or four times as he was abusing me. And I said to him, it's my fault. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine how it feels to be in your shoes. Well, something like that. And love melted fear. It meant that that actually shut him up. And what I mean by that is he just, he just, you know, his energy dissipated. And he looked at me without knowing what to say. And with a huff and a puff, he just walked away. That's mm. what I mean by love melting fear. And there's obviously more um, exaggerated versions of that. There's more extreme versions of that. But when you respond to life from love, that's how you manage all the fear. Mm. Whereas if you respond or manage fear with fear, so the person gives you the bird, you're in the wrong, and you go, fuck you. And they go, it just escalates into more fear. Complexity. Mm. The guy comes to the house, he's yelling abuse at me because I nearly ran him over, and I respond with, well, what were you doing in the dark with your black clothes? You fuck, you know, then it was just going to bring more fear. And um, it is really, really easy to default in reacting to the world when something's happening to you. Mm. So... Love melts all fear, meaning we'll take the higher road and respond. And this is another question I, I want to share with your listeners is that, uh, you know, whoever your hero is in life, Mandela, Buddha, Christ, whatever your hero Superman. is. Superman. Superman. You ask yourself the question, what would Mandela do? What would Mother Teresa do? What would Christ do? What would Buddha do? What would Superman do? What would these people do, your heroes? And the answer is that you won't necessarily know what to do, but you will know what not to do. Mm. And that is to not respond in fear. So love will always conquer fear. That's why the world. That's what. The, that's what's holding the world together, is people who are choosing to live more from love, than um, from fear. Mm. So. Love conquers all. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how, mm. when I've done workshops, that are this kind of uh, personal development stuff. Mm. How you walk away from them, or I walk away from them with this fearless sense. And that's not to say that there aren't elements in my life where I'm not questioning things mm. or not skeptical sure. or whatever it may be. But I feel so alive energetically. I feel so in love and things don't phase me like mm. superficial complexities, mm. if you like. Mm. Don't, it's just like water off a duck's back mm. after that. And then, you know, a few days later, it's like the, the heaviness of life and the, the cloak of fear mm. starts to come back on and you kind of, 
go, oh, where was that? Where's that feeling gone? But I think the more you work on that muscle, mm. going back to this emotional fitness, the yes. more that you um, walk through the tunnel, yes. the more that you walk through the fire, you navigate your way out of hell. Yeah. The stronger you become, the less it becomes, the more you live from that place of love. And the healthier, more robust your perspective becomes. Mm. And when that perspective is strong like that, um, it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's a good thing. Mm. Mm. Do you remember the first time... The, the question is normally... This is a standard question. Right. The question is normally... You're going to ask me a standard question. I, I can't uh, believe it. Yeah. I, can't, I thought this was going to be organic. You're now you're asking me a standard question. I know. What, what am I doing? But I don't know. The question is normally, do you remember the first time that you entertained anyone? And this doesn't really apply in your case because the core of the question, I suppose, yeah. is do you remember the first time you did what it is that you love that gave you the feedback to go, fuck, I want to do this for the rest of my life. So I guess for you, it might be, do you remember the first time that you... I can answer your question. Oh, first time entertain, Because um, I remember the first time I entertained someone was, I was single digits. I was before the age of 10 because we were living in our house in Airport West. We didn't move out of there until we were 10. Then I was brought up in Essendon and all that. But uh, the first uh, 10 years of life we lived in that house. And I remember when relatives would come over I would dress up in fancy clothing and entertain them and they would laugh and carry on. <laughs> and now I was, of course, as an eight-year-old or whatever age I was, I had no clue that that was kind of the essence of the um, where I belonged. Not in the entertainment industry, but my style of education is through entertainment, um, as I'm sure you agree. Mm. Risky point I'm making here in case you disagree. <laughs> oh, no, I agree. Yeah. And uh, thank you. And uh, so that was the first time. And then... It wasn't until 1996, the day that we got married, when we gave thank you speeches at the wedding, which were also entertaining, not planned, purely organic. I didn't know how that was going to turn out. And that was another clue. But I wasn't thinking the way I was thinking when I started my coaching business. I wasn't thinking like, can this become a career? Is this something I should be doing? But I remember it was lingering in the back of my mind for many, many years going, geez, this, um, this, is, this is kind of like the essence of what should be in my career. I don't know how it's going to happen. And I remember actually writing in one of my journals that my perfect job doesn't exist and my ideal work is something I'm just going to need to make up. And thankfully, I ran into the world of coaching, which gave me that platform. Mm. So I can answer your standard question. You can, yeah. and you did. Yeah. Take that, Al. <laughs> um, I like to wrap up the show by asking sure. another standard question. Oh, okay. You've got two in a row. Oh, my it's God. Crazy. Nick, is this normal that we get two standard questions in a row? No. No. Do no. I need to feel special about that? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> Go for it. Um, no, it's not. It's not exactly your average. Cool. Maybe we should change the name to... Not, uh, well, you'll work it out. Yeah, I'll work it out. Go for it. Go for it. Um, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Yeah. Oh. Um, well, laughing at myself. Um, you said the cosmic joke, so realizing the ridiculous role that we have in this whole thing. Laughing at mistakes my own mistakes um my boys make me silly my kids my wife takes the piss i mean my, my family my, my wife and my kids uh beyond beyond ground me you know mm. like i come home from these seminars and i know how this is going to sound however this comes across but for some crazy reason people put me up in this pedestal as some whatever and i come home and all i am when i come home is a husband a friend a, a father and uh so what keeps me grounded, I translate your word silly to grounded, is, um, you know, those relationships. And my best friend as well, you know, he takes a piss all the time. That's fantastic. Mm. And I love that. 
And um, do you have an example? Oh, it's just um, oh, I've all been an example. I was I was with my best friend just the other last week um, in his uh, in his store, and uh, he was just making some childlike remark about a jacket that I was buying that I said to him, Mark, can I, you reckon I could wear this jacket in one of my presentations? And then he was just making some silly remark about uh, why I would not wear that jacket or something. I can't remember the exact remark, but he was just taking the piss. And um, and that's part of the silliness. That's part of the taking yourself lightly, you know? Um, so yeah, the people who love you the most, keep you grounded. Mm. And and uh, because it's not useful having people around you who hold you in this high regard where after a while your feelings of yourself are beyond what the truth is mm. and that's where you got to keep yourself uh, so the, the silliness i i hope that makes sense to you alistair translates to being grounded and that these are the people who love me and i love is what keeps me like that mm. yeah it's beautiful mm. thank you very much joe really thanks alistair thanks nick and i appreciate your times it's fantastic my pleasure thank you thank you Yep, my brother certainly had to get the mop out after that one. So many mind explosions going off. Thank you to Joe Parne for the chats and for the inspirations. If you want to find out more about him and his seminars, you can find Joe on Facebook under his name, Joe Parne, P-A-N-E, or go on the Coaching Institute's Facebook page or website, which is thecoachinginstitute.com.au. And friends, a big thanks to you for all your support. If you're new to the show, there's a tremendous slate of guests to go back and check out. Uh, from Molly Meldrum to Samuel Johnson, Michaela Bannis, uh, Toddy Goldsmith. I've been very humbled by the people who've joined me in the Ramble Room thus far. And that rolls on because next week's guest is one of the best-known writer-directors in the country, from Lowdown to This Is Littleton. Coming up next, Amanda Brocci. And don't forget, friends, if you're tuning in regularly, or this is your first time popping in, if this is a show that you're really enjoying, you're finding it's adding great value to your week, and it's something that you'd love to see continue and thrive. Head on over to patreon.com slash marksbros, support something you love, and have some warm fuzzy feelings for your week. Until next time. <laughs>